This is KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Coming up, Subversity with Dan Zhang. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the regents of the University of California, nor the management of KUCI. Uh, Today, we're going to be uh, taking a two-part look at uh, hot topics in the news. Uh, First, we're going to be covering uh, Obama's immigration reform proposals. And then in our second half hour, we're going to look at Michael Jackson as a queer icon. Icon. So... um, so um, w- first, we're going to be talking about uh, immigration reform, and uh, and the uh, and the um, and the proposals in Congress and also in the president's office to deal with immigration as it uh, this season. Uh, and with us uh, is one of the top observers of immigration uh, in uh, the country. Uh, f- and uh, on the show, and so we have with us an expert on immigration policy from Washington D.C., and we'll be uh, talking with her uh, shortly about this uh, policy. Uh, the sound seems kind of there's a lot of background noise. Uh huh. Can you uh, welcome to the show, Mary Giovagnoli? Hi, Hi, how are you? Good. Uh, Mary, you're the director of the Immigration Policy Center, and uh, that's in Washington, D.C., and how would you characterize your, your center? I like to say that the Immigration Policy Center is a place where we try to bridge the gap between academia and advocacy and between politics and policy. So we are really about putting out factual information about the impact of immigration and, um, frankly, the positive impact uh, of immigration on on the country, Um, looking at the solutions and uh, arguments that are out there immigration reform, and really trying to be, I think, a, a, a fair and reasonable voice, um, especially when, you know, anti-immigrant sentiment is kind of put out there, trying to respond with, you know, factual information about about the issues that are raised. And you were uh, actually an attorney with the uh, general counsel with the Immigration and Naturalization Service before. That's right. I um, actually started my career as a, a government attorney. I was a trial attorney. I was uh, in the general counsel's office in INS. I, I focused on asylum and refugee law, but, uh, you know, over the years managed to touch on most of the issues in immigration and made the transition over to DHS and uh, did that for a few years. And then uh, before moving into the nonprofit world, I uh, was on a uh, fellowship for a year to Senator Kennedy's office. So I was actually um, in his office um, during the 2007 debate and worked there for that year. And I always say it was like getting a master's degree in legislation. It was such an intense um, and rewarding, although ultimately <laughs> unsuccessful experience in lawmaking. Yeah, and you went to University of Wisconsin Law School. I did. Yeah, that's a great campus. I oh, like, yeah, I uh, love like, Madison. I like the lake there. <laughs> I know, I know. It would be nice to be conducting this interview from one of those great chairs right. on the lake. Oh, yeah. Union. And under sunny skies, hopefully. <laughs> yes, but, I mean, come on, you all. We have sunny weather it's here. It's not such a bad life, either. <laughs> it's quite, it's going to, it's actually overcast now, but later it should be hot, I think, today. <laughs> yeah. The, um, what is it like switching from government service to uh, non-profit service? It was... You know, I was lucky in that I sort of made a gradual transition because I, I, since I worked for the senator for a year, I was still working in the government and for the government, but it was in a much more, you know, political uh, atmosphere than when you're a career civil servant attorney. Um, and so in some ways that kind of helped me um, uh, reorient my mindset a little bit. I think it can be a real shock to go straight from government to nonprofit because, you know, your your whole way of doing things is different. I think I think the things that I notice the most really are that I'm um, 
it, things move much more quickly. Um, you have, as a rule, especially depending upon how big or small your nonprofit organization is, you, you decide that this is what we want to say or this is what we want to do, and you put the press statement out or you do the project or the event, and, and it's done. And, and there's, you know, far less sort of uh, decision-making that, has to or, or layers, I guess that has to you have to go through. Whereas in the government, uh, especially when you're a career person, your 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 ability to sort of affect things is is fairly small and is fairly tied to a lot of you know other decisions made higher up the chain. Um, so that's positive. The the more difficult part really is that in the government, your ability to affect things. If you're in a place where you can actually make a difference, you can sometimes really make a difference in somebody's life immediately. Um, and so I was lucky to be in situations, especially doing refugee and asylum law work, where I was actually able to, to help somebody through the process or by how we interpreted the law or how we did asylum policy or whatever actually, I think, worked to make people's lives better. Now, it didn't always work out that way, obviously, but um, when when it works, it's, it's a wonderful thing to feel like you're really helping a lot of people in a, in a broad way. But, you know, it's a trade-off, too, because I was a government attorney um, uh, most of my time under an administration I didn't agree with. And you kind of <laughs> yeah. find that point where you just can't do it anymore. And, uh-huh. and so that was when I finally decided to go to the nonprofit world, when I just felt like I couldn't really be true to what I wanted to do. Is the pay better? In the government? Oh, yeah. <laughs> In the government. <laughs> yeah. And but, you, get a, you, pen, know, you the, get a pension, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, you know, it's, it's it, to me, and I suppose I would think to, to you and to most of your listeners, you just, you have to find that place where you feel like you're really making a difference. And, and uh, the nonprofit world is clearly a great place to do that. And, and immigration right now, I just felt like it, it, was one of the defining issues really for our generation. I think it's one of the uh, critical civil rights issues of um, right. you know this yeah. decade and and the next. And I just felt like I needed to be in a place where I could be more political and do uh, a little bit more um, aggressive work. And so even though the IPC itself is nonpartisan, I feel like we're contributing to. Um, uh, uh, the much broader debate and trying to provide, you know, good information and, and good evidence as to why, you know, immigration reform and doing it right and doing it well is is a net gain to our country. Well, definitely. Uh, I'm on your mailing list, and uh, one of our graduate students, I, I believe Roberto uh, is a Gonzalez, uh, mm-hmm. also uh, had written for your publication in Focus about the yes. dream about his w- research on the Dream Act. Which is again in the news. Uh, there was a big rally in Orange here in California and across the country, I believe, uh, talking about. Uh, uh, actually, there was a uh, kind of a ersatz graduation uh, ceremony uh, in Santa Ana for lots of people who um, are undocumented, I suppose. And um, so the push is that right now is for this kind of uh, legislation to get through. And this week, Obama had also. Uh, convened a group to talk about this uh, immigration reform issue. Right, right. Um, and I believe the New York Times also editorialized on it um, uh, just over the weekend. Uh, how, how, what's the status of Obama's immigration reform uh, efforts now? I think that we're at a very important and critical time. Um, Throughout his campaign and into the transition period, he was very clear about supporting the idea of a truly comprehensive um, reform of our immigration system. And uh, the White House meeting this past week I think really, really made it clear to Republicans and Democrats that he was serious, that although there are huge issues that – he's been dealing with from the beginning of his administration, such as the economy, such as health care, such as climate change, that that he's never really forgotten that immigration is another issue that has to be addressed sooner rather than later. And, and he made that point 
uh, uh, from what we understand uh, from reports of people who were in the meeting, he made that point very clearly in the meeting. He um, really reached out to both sides of the aisle to try to get people to uh, work together. He um, he made a lot of. Uh, uh, important, I think, sort of gestures. He praised Senator McCain at his uh, press conference right after the meeting, um, and he acknowledged, you know, that there were some problems ahead, difficulties that people had to face, but that that he had tried to pull together a group of um, members of Congress from Republicans and Democrats who were serious about actually getting something done. I believe he said, not in five years, not in three years, but now. And so I personally think, and I've been, I have been watching all of these things for a long time, that this is a, it's a very important moment, and it's a moment where there's real promise. Um, he appointed Janet Napolitano to be the right. head of a yeah. working group, and that also is really important because he's signaling that he's putting, you know, the the a cabinet member at the head of. Uh, a plan. So it's not unlike the other projects or the other uh, major legislative initiatives that Obama has done, where he starts with some kind of meeting among the political folks, and then he appoints a task force, and then we expect that there will be, you know, outreach to advocacy groups and stakeholders and all of that. And so, you know, it's kind of going along, at least so far, the, the pattern of his reform movement. So I think you take all that into account, and you say, you know, we're, we're on track right now. The, um, the news reports I've seen also suggest that Republicans are more willing to uh, sign up for this because they are losing you know, their base and are losing right. their support, especially among younger voters who are for immigration reform. And so they're looking for ways to recoup that uh, loss. Yeah, Dan, that's an excellent point. I think that the demographics are really showing that, um, you know, the Republican Party uh, stands to lose a great deal if it isn't perceived as supporting immigration reform. And certainly major Republican leaders, uh, including, you know, the chairman of the party and, uh, you know, former White House folks like Karl Rove are saying, you know, we have to change our tune. We have to find a way to um, stop appearing to be divisive on this and so uh, that that is a uh, it's an important change. Now, that being said, for a lot of uh, Republicans, it's still a hard sell because the I shouldn't say Republicans generally, but for a lot of the Republicans in Congress, it's a hard sell because they they don't yet believe that their districts are the ones that um, vote this way. And so there's been a lot of work to try to identify polling and um, perceptions, and and what they find is that even in really, really conservative districts, there's there's the need to, to – people – People say that there's a need to reform the immigration laws. They may not like all the laws, but they realize the laws we have right now um, aren't working. And so I think part of it is helping, you know, Republicans see, uh, elected officials see that that uh, even even in districts that are perceived to be pretty conservative, there's a genuine frustration with the government for failing to solve this problem and a recognition that you can't deport 12 million people, so how are you going to actually really deal with this. So you're right. I think there is a shift. But it's still pretty subtle. And the the fact that we're seeing it in the country doesn't necessarily mean that it will translate fully into votes unless everybody pushes their administration or their, their elected officials to, you know, to make that change. So so your listeners who, who um, you know, are in districts where maybe this isn't the most popular issue. It, it really ends up turning on everybody to, to keep pushing their representative to, you know, uh, change their mind and vote for immigration reform. Oh, just a technical point. Uh, you're coming across very uh, kind of with some echo. So are you on a cell phone? or? Uh, I'm on my regular phone. Uh, or maybe... I'm sorry. Turn, is there a way to turn the volume down? <laughs> I wonder. Turn it. Turn it. Uh, or maybe down. down. Uh, it's a bit too. Uh, How's that? Does that yeah. sound better? Let's do some uh, sound like that in the back. Not sure what uh-huh. that is. Huh. 
Well, well, that could be part of being in the nonprofit world. I can hear um, garbage trucks out my window. Oh. <laughs> no, now it's better. Um, okay. Yeah, the um, there's some uh, some noise. Maybe it's just a line. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right about the. You know, there is some resistance actually in Orange County to the Dream Act when the um, register, the local papers wrote about this uh, event. There was, um, you know, the newspapers now have, um, they're online, and so people can comment. And there was a lot of resistance uh, from the readers uh, to that event. Uh, you know, they, were, they weren't happy that this was happening. Mm-hmm. And um, how, how do you think the, the reform efforts will deal with um, students then uh, in colleges? Uh, well, I anticipate that the DREAM Act would be part of any major comprehensive immigration proposal. Uh, both the DREAM Act and another one uh, that has been around for a long time, the Ag Jobs Bill, which addresses um, farm workers, uh, are both sort of, I guess you could say they're sort of tried and true uh, bills. They've been through the fire. They've been through a lot of uh, congressional votes. They've been through committee. Um, they're, they're ideas that I think are just on the edge of always getting passed, but the sort of broader political issues around comprehensive reform always sort of kind of pull them back. And so I think that uh, they actually help push all of the issues forward when the when the political frame is right, and I think we have the right political frame now. Um, and so I think that uh, Dream Act and Ag Jobs are sort of natural things that will uh, help sort of actually get the agencies up to up to speed and help a lot of people quickly and get get sort of the government in the mode of doing legalization so that then by the time the the, the broader group of people who need who, who are going to need legal status um, start to apply and register and do all of the, the things that probably will happen, um, we'll already have some track record of what works, what doesn't work, how to make the system more efficient. So I think that they are incredibly important bills in and of themselves. I also think they're important as part of the overall momentum, I guess, for getting our immigration reform system or our immigration system kind of back together. Uh, maybe you could explain what the DREAM Act and the other, the Act Bill is. Sure. Sorry. Um, the DREAM Act is premised on the idea that there are thousands and thousands and thousands of kids who were brought here when they were very, very young. Um, uh, and have grown up in the United States, uh, sometimes believing they're U.S. citizens, other times maybe knowing that they, their status is uh, not lawful, but uh, knowing no other world. Um, and uh, they usually are able to kind of make it through high school without too much uh, disruption. Um, many, many kids do very well, are ready to go to college, uh, maybe are, you know, applying for scholarships, and then they come up against uh, the inevitable, oh, but you're not in this country legally. And so what DREAM Act would attempt to do would be to focus on this group of kids who really through, you know, uh, no fault of their own, if you want to put it that way, are here in the U.S. and want to contribute want to go forward with their education, uh, in some cases want to go forward by serving their country in the military, and can't do it. Um, so the DREAM Act sort of creates a, a, a grace uh, period for these kids to go to college or serve in the military, and um, if they are able to successfully complete those kinds of um, requirements or expectations, they then become, um, they, they then get their green card. So it, it's sort of acknowledging um, that that these kids really don't have alternatives if, if, uh, if we don't give them a way to go to school or serve in the military or, or whatever their particular contribution is. But then when they're done with that, if everything has gone well, then they should be able to move into the you know, legal system and eventually become citizens. Uh, right now, the, in the California, at least, the students can go to college, but the students who are undocumented or from undocumented families can go to college, but the, uh, the, it's a catch-22 because after they graduate, 
can they really get jobs here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's a very good point. Yeah, it, it clearly differs from state to state, and some states have been more generous in their approach um, to, to these issues. And uh, uh, But for many kids, it also becomes a question of even if they can go to school, they can't necessarily afford it because they can't qualify for financial aid, those kinds oh, of right. things. Oh, right, so, yeah, yeah. And uh, and the agricultural bill uh, well, segment of the bill, sort of the same kind of thing. Uh, ag jobs, which is its its nickname, is uh, a plan that um, was worked out between the um, growers and the labor unions uh, to sort of meet. Uh, both both sides' needs in terms of ensuring that there was a, a, a group of folks who were ready, willing, and able to, to continue to, you know, to harvest our crops and things like that. And so the idea is that if you have worked in the United States um, harvesting crops or in other, um, you know, agricultural endeavors for a certain period of time, then you can qualify to enter this program, and then you commit to working, um, you know, for another couple of years in agriculture, and at the end of that time, you become a legal resident. Again, you get your green card. And so it gives an avenue for these folks who have been doing, you know, the work in some cases for years and years and years to finally move into the legal system. And at the same time, it sort of creates some um, incentive for um, workers to remain initially in in agriculture. Um, and uh, the full ag jobs program also then has some reforms that deal with how new workers come into the system um, uh, so that so that you know we're decreasing the incentive for illegal immigration by ensuring that we have enough um, slots really for legal immigrant immigrants to be able to come into the country the uh, there's some uh, talk in at least in the news about people who are upset at uh, at uh, young children who are here uh, from from undocumented workers, and they are saying that even if they're born here, they want to revoke citizenship of mm. uh, of these young people. Is is there any actual move to do that? Uh, you know, this is one of those issues that it's sort of popular for certain people to you know take on as their their big issue, but. Uh, knock on wood, it generally doesn't go anywhere. Um, we actually later in the in the summer or fall are going to put out some uh, analysis on what's called birthright citizenship um, mm. and uh, studying all the different arguments that people make. But I think the bottom line is that you know part of what's so amazing about our country is that you know if you're if you're born here, you're able to fully participate in, in our democracy. And doing anything to change that would really sort of fundamentally alter who we are as a country. And so I think that in the long run, cooler heads prevail. But it's, you know, it's popular. So, yeah. it's, you know, it's like the people who get upset about... Um, you know, burning the flag and want to have constitutional amendments against it. I mean, it's, you know, it it doesn't really matter what your belief is. It just is something that can really trigger a lot of heated emotions, and so people latch on to it. Even if you're born abroad to a U.S. parent, you're considered a citizen at birth. Mm -hmm. And so, um, I mean, there's this controversy about Obama, whether he was really born in Hawaii. (laughs) But uh, it doesn't really matter. I mean... Because one of his her parents, one of his parents is American, so American citizen, so it doesn't really matter, you know. Well, you wouldn't think so, but right. yeah. So anyway, <laughs> it's a very <laughs> controversial issue. How about this agricultural thing? Do you think it's going to end up in more exploitation of workers or less? I think it's designed to um, again remember it's a it's a. a compromise that both growers and labor unions um, support. And, uh, you know, the United Farm Workers is a big proponent of ag jobs uh, because it's designed to, to ensure that, uh, that people are able to do their work in, in um, uh, a legal setting. And I think, you know, the minute that you have legal status, it, 
in this country, it really increases your ability and your power to sort of um, advocate for yourself or, you know, to you know, join the union and be part of something bigger and have more protections. And then I also think that the new, the, the other provisions of the bill that would, would address, you know, future uh, legal immigration, it's that same idea that, you know, you, you're just not as vulnerable when you have some kind of legal status. Why, why are the growers um, supporting this? I think there are a lot of reasons. One of them is, I think, to have to maintain some kind of steady, predictable source of labor, um, and that you know there are there are benefits to having a a, a legal workforce. Um, and they, I think the growers realize that you know the a very high percentage of of folks that they employ are here unlawfully and. Uh, they would rather be on the right side of the law, um, and I think they would rather, um, you know, have a system that rewards people for their hard work by uh, achieving a legal, you know, being able to get legal status. Uh, are most of these jobs not taken by uh, American citizens, then? That's, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And um, our, uh, um, my center has been uh, producing a series of papers on on this very issue, and so if your listeners are interested, they can go to um, org um, and we've released some papers that actually study this whole issue of, you know, immigrants taking American jobs, is that uh, a myth or, or reality? And, and what, we, what we tend to find is, you know, in, in any given place there might be some direct competition, but for the most part, um, it, it really is a myth, you know. It's not that um, it's not that immigrants are directly competing with Americans for jobs. It tends to be the case that they um, complement uh, American jobs. And, you know, in a recession, it may be that there are some people who would consider doing some of this work um, that they otherwise wouldn't have, but you know, for the most part, the folks who are unemployed, if they're unemployed in Michigan, they're probably not going to come to California to pick lettuce, you know? And so um, the, the information on our website lays out um, the sort of statistical analysis at, that, that folks have done to, to really address that issue head on. How, uh, how many people actually work at the center um. <laughs> We're actually very small. We have about um, five full-time employees, but we have, you know, research fellows, and we, um, you know, get people to write for us either voluntarily or for, um, you know, a small fee. Um, and uh, we we just try to really, uh, you know, do both uh, original research. We have two uh people with PhDs on staff. Um, we have a really great blog called immigrationimpact.com where we try to highlight the different issues that we're working on and comment on, you know, the day-to-day uh, immigration issues. And so it's, it's, it's amazing how much you can put out with a small staff if everybody is focused and dedicated and really cares about the issue, and, and we certainly have that here. Uh, as a librarian, I was always interested in what resources you use. Do you subscribe to any uh, legal databases or some other databases? Or uh, you know, you don't have to. <laughs> you can get uh, it somewhere else. We we um. Well, you know how it is now. With the Internet, it's amazing the information that is uh, in the public domain. Um, we do subscribe to a, a couple of services. Um, you know, we get the Congressional Quarterly, and we get um, updates from a number of different uh folks, but uh, we don't really, I mean, we don't subscribe to, say, you know, Lexus and Nexus and the, the big guys like that because you, you can really get basically all that information um, in the public domain now. And, you know, in trying to figure out how best to spend our money, uh, we really try to use the sources that are readily available to us. Well, thank you very much. We're coming up to the end of our half hour. Uh, well, thank and, you. Yeah, and thanks for giving out all the information about your websites. 
Oh, Thank absolutely. You. Please do visit it. And um, also, if folks are interested in getting more involved in immigration reform directly, they should check out the website of the um, sort of national campaign, which is called Reform Immigration for America. So type that in, and you can find just a host of information about um, what you can do uh, on a national and local level to, to try to change the, uh, the direction of immigration policy. Thank you. Thank bye-bye. you. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, that was uh, Mary um, Giovagnoli, who is the director of the Immigration Policy Center in Washington, D.C. And we're going to take a break, and coming back, we'll be discussing Michael Jackson as a gay icon. So in our second segment for this uh, show, we're going to be talking about Michael Jackson and his um, identity as a, or his uh, acceptance by many gay people as well as queer people and his, uh, this notion of him as a queer icon. And with us on the show is uh, Kaylin uh, Alex- Alexander who's a Ph.D. Can, uh, student at uh, Cornell University's Department of English, uh, researching queer studies topics. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Dan. How are you today? Good. Um, what, what do you think of um, Michael Jackson as a queer icon, so-called? Well, I've been discussing this a lot with my friends, and I think what's interesting um, about Michael Jackson is how he valorizes a lot of um, the things we think about as queer performatives, um, even more so than some uh, celebrities who are more easily or more uh, widely accepted as queer icons. So I'm thinking especially about Madonna, who um, a lot of the times in, like, Queer Studies 101 courses, you'll have something like, oh, Madonna um, as, as a queer icon sort of embodies a lot of the ways in which we think of um, queerness as contingent identities or malleable identities and malleable genders and malleable racial performatives and things like that. And I think when one thinks about Michael Jackson, he's doing a lot of the same stuff, or he was doing a lot of the same stuff, I'm sorry, um, but maybe in a way that did a lot queer work insofar as it maybe made people uncomfortable. Um, so he's maybe like the less cuddly queer, queer icon, if you want to think about it that way. A lot of young people, like uh, young gay people, especially like his liked his music and grew up uh, help uh, with his music, helping them survive. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, especially in the last five years, there was a really um, widely played mashup of you know the milkshake song and then Billie Jean, <laughs> which uh-huh. was um, really popular in, in gay clubs, as far as I can remember. Um, and I think. Uh, you know, there's certainly a generational divide in terms of how people might remember Michael Jackson, but at the same time, that kind of gave him a lot of exposure. But I think um, even young people, I've been um, noticing on Facebook that um, even young people who grew up um, in the last few years, they um, one, one person from uh, Hong Kong, for instance, uh, on his Facebook said that he knew uh, mus- the music of Michael Jackson since he was six. And wow. it helped him uh, survive his childhood. Wow. And so, uh, I mean, it's, there's a new generation, and with the Internet, you, you never know what is online anymore. And so they, they have access. Definitely, definitely. Uh, do you feel that uh, there seems to be a disconnect with the mainstream gay culture and this kind of adoration of Michael Jackson? Uh, the mainstream gay media has been kind of reluctant to uh, cover uh, Michael Jackson much, and uh, for instance, if you look at the Advocate, all they did was run uh, uh, an interview with, a, a with Elizabeth de- Taylor, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and then a death notice, and then uh, you know a, a news account about his uh, Michael's death at UCLA Medical Center, and uh, last week, and uh, the you could read the feedback from readers, and it's vitriolic. I mean, they yeah. totally hate Michael Jackson. Some of the yeah. mainstream gays just call him all sorts of names and yeah. say, why are you covering this? Why is Advocate, why is the Advocate, which is this mainstream now gay publication, um, you know, why is it even talking about him? Yeah, and it's the same with, like, Out.com. Um, of, like, the feministy and queer mainstream publications that I know, the only one that had substantial coverage about his death was, I think, Bust. Um, which is really interesting in its own right. But um, I don't know, I think part of 
maybe mainstreaming queer politics meant really, this is a really accurate gauge of how the mainstreaming of gay and lesbian politics has kind of involved a disavowal of maybe certain sexualities that are less legible um, than something like discrete homosexuality, right? Um, sure, yeah, and this is kind of ironic because 40 years after Stonewall, this week is also s- the celebration of 40 years of the Stonewall Rebellion where yeah. uh, people like Michael Jackson would have been celebrated at Stonewall. Yeah. Uh, and <laughs> yet uh, nowadays they call him homophobic, they call him a child molester, they call him all yeah. sorts of names. Well, I mean, I, I think that like what people always forget about Stonewall, right, was that as far as I've read accounts, it wasn't primarily or just, you know, like upper-class, respectable, quote-unquote, gay folks who were writing. It was, you know, like, pansexual people of color, right? And that's what gets lost in all the history books because we have all this imagery that seems to disavow that. And so when you have uh, all sorts of debates that really require a certain kind of respectability, what gets thrown out, right? And, of course, nobody um, would feel comfortable embracing Michael Jackson as a queer um, figure around whom a politics could could thrive, right? That's not going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, drag queens were very active in the Stonewall Rebellion, and yeah. um, street people, uh, people, homeless people, uh, all yeah. sorts of people. And it's ironic the New York Times now is devoting a whole uh, section on their topics. You know, New York Times has this topics page on different topics, and they have one called um, Stonewall Rebellion. And you can go to get a lot of articles, including the, an article by the, the author of the Village Voice story. Uh, but oh, wow. at the time, you know, they just covered it in one or two paragraphs, uh, a small, small, at the time of the Stonewall Rebellion, the Times basically ignored it. Um, yeah. And they didn't realize how important this movement was. Yeah. Um, that started, actually, gay liberation. Um, do you think that... Um, because of the trials that the you know the one trial that Michael Jackson settled out of uh, that that was acquitted of, and then he was charged with uh, having sex with a boy, and an earlier case where he settled out of court uh, apparently for millions of dollars. Um, because of those cases, that uh, there's a lot of resistance in the mainstream gay media to cover this. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I, I think that's really what it comes down to. And um, I, I think that, especially with all the gay marriage debates going on all across the country, um, what we're seeing is this real anxiety about children, right, especially for gay folks, because that was always the old stereotype, right, was homosexuals and especially homosexual men cannot be teachers because they will indoctrinate our children or do things with them that we don't really want to talk about. Um, and so part of mainstream gay and lesbian politics has involved basically embracing a certain notion of the family um, that really privileges having children, right, um, as a sort of counteractive. Yeah, but if you look at regular heterosexual families, they are pretty dysfunctional. And oh, totally. Most, uh, most heterosexual marriages end up in divorce anyway. Yeah. And so why why are gay people modeling themselves after that? Right. So I mean, it's, now it's not just that we have to you know demand access to these rights; it's that we have to be the model citizens and the model um, bearers of those rights um, in order to justify them. Right. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, there's a actually there was a book that came out uh, after the first uh, case that uh, Michael Jackson settled, and the book was actually available in gay bookstores at uh, Different Light, for instance, in uh, Los Angeles. And this was, in theory, a, a diary of the kid that was involved in oh, the wow. case. Yeah, Evan Chandler. and uh, Jordy Chandler, not Evan. Jordy Chandler. And the subtitle is The Secret Diary of Jordy Chandler. Uh, Michael Jackson was, was My Lover, was the title. Oh. And the guy who wrote it is a journalist called Victor Gutierrez. And okay. It actually has uh, lots of salacious details about what happened uh, wow. and the places that Michael took this boy to and the money they poured on the, on the parents and wow. the mother especially. And other people also feature in it. Uh, Macaulay Culkin also is described in the, this so-called diary and yeah. <laughs> so-called report of a diary. And, uh, 
and I understand he testified in the second in the trial actually. Nicola uh, Culkin did. Yeah, in support of Michael. Yeah, uh, well, I guess they were quite close, right? Nicola Culkin was in the video for Black and White. If you've ever seen it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so <laughs> yeah, definitely, and the. Uh, in the second case, I, th- I believe it was a, a feminist lawyer who uh, sued because he saw a documentary of Michael holding hands with his uh, second boy ah. and uh, filed a lawsuit. And in that case, the the jury acquitted him. And in part, I think some of the even the some of the uh, anti uh, you know some of the prosecution uh, and analysts uh, pro prosecution analysts. Uh, would say that it's because the uh, mother came across as just trying to, um, or the parents, I think, came across as just trying to extort money from uh, Michael. And, oh, okay. And that's the gist of an analysis by Ishmael Reed in um, in one of the blogs, uh, which uh, which uh, is posted after his death, which argues that a lot of the mainstream media um, didn't, Acknowledge this that this that Jackson was actually um, the target of uh, of uh, crusading prosecutors who didn't like him and uh, went to extremes to get uh, get him uh, arrested and uh, in this uh, case that went to trial. So well, th- and there's um <clears throat> there's a really interesting piece by James Kincaid. Yeah, who's like I think at USC. Is that correct? Maybe. Right. I think so. Um, and he, it's in this uh, great, great, great collection called Curiouser on the Queerness of Children, which is edited by, I want to say, Stephen Broom and a second editor as well. And it's this really amazing rundown of just uh, like 10 or 12 scenes, right, uh, of children in proximity to sexuality. And uh, the entire collection is really about the stories we tell about children to make ourselves feel okay about children who are these really strange and amorphous um, bearers of a lot of sexual imaginaries, right? So, like, the book you're describing by Guterres, is it it? Yeah. Um, it seems like part of what it's doing there is this demystification project, right, of, like, well, we can't just leave it unsaid what might have happened. We have to actually think about it. But, no, we don't want to think about it because it's too terrible, and these are all things that are, are you know, basically monstrous to even think about. So it's this real um, mixed message about what we want from children, whether we want to protect them from certain sexual advances, whether we want to hear about those certain sexual advances, you know, albeit coded in, in the media. But um, I think what's, what's also interesting is how some of the memorials um, in, in video footage especially of Michael Jackson kind of do this weird thing where they regress him back to the child, right? Yeah. Um, so, like, in memori- and remembering Michael Jackson, um, Jackson actually... Five. Yeah, Jackson yeah, 5, yeah. yeah. And, you know, like, with, with the adorable Afro and he's singing Ben and things like that, I saw a lot of people who posted videos not of, you know, Michael Jackson's... Uh, posted on Facebook, I'm sorry. Um, videos not from Michael Jackson's work in the past, say, 10 years, but from when he was, you know, a kid with Jackson 5. And so I guess the gist of it is that we have this public imaginary of of Michael Jackson as somebody who was constantly trying to get back to childhood or had a fascination with children that was really, you know, this coded Peter Pan complex. And so what's, what's really funny to me is that in trying to remember him as the child from the Jackson 5, you're, like, it's as though we are actually fulfilling his desires, right, in, in a weird way, if, if that makes sense. Although it's a kind of a sanitized view, huh? It's a kind of innocent... Yeah, uh, totally, yeah, totally. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, yeah. Uh, I mean, he... I mean, the the advocate the readers who commented on the on the webpage of theadvocate.com uh, say he was homophobic. And Michael Jackson was. Yeah, I wouldn't huh. say that. Uh, I, I, mean, I wouldn't either. Yeah, I mean, it's because he was, you know, he, because he would go on, on TV and talk about his wife and, you know, stuff, but uh, his wives and, uh, you know, but, you know, that's this whole gay thing about not accepting um, diversity, right? Uh, right? You have to be fit a certain gay identity and you can't have, um, you know, wives. Um, yeah. Definitely. And, 
with the child focus, it seems to me that um, he was definitely interested in boys and not girls, <laughs> and that's clear in the book. Uh, the this book that uh, uh, that I picked up at the gay bookstore talks about how he would uh, actually uh, pick boys out from a family and take them on uh, to stores and buy them gifts at Toys R Us, but not the girls uh, in the family. And so he definitely had a special attraction for young people, and uh, he uh, and you know you can wax about whether that was uh you know innocent or was it sexual was it uh, whatever but i'm interested more in the reaction of the gay media and how they uh tend to forget that uh you know gay people don't just arrive when they're 18 uh, they, lots of gay people are teenagers and, right definitely and a lot of gay teens uh did identify with uh michael jackson and yeah. um and to him, he was, uh, you know, somebody they they admired. And, yeah, definitely. Um, did you see, uh, in what kind of music do you think was specifically uh, would address coming out and or kind of gay angst in, in childhood or in youth? Uh, I'm sorry, what? what? What kind of music of Michael do you think would, uh, would uh, address these issues of, you know, loneliness, of uh, identity and stuff like that? Oh gosh, um, let's see. I'm sure I, I have a really embarrassing personal story, which is that. Um, <laughs> uh, when, yeah, no, it. <laughs> like, it's embarrassing, but um, when I was maybe oh gosh, eleven or twelve, um, he had that great song from the Free Willy soundtrack, and mm. um, I I don't really know what I if I identified with something in the lyrics or something like that, or if I just liked really lavish production or something as a kid, but. Um, I ended up as, like, a little tiny proto-gay um, kid, like, choreographing, this is so embarrassing, um, a dance to it with my best friend, huh. who, you know, like, he is also gay now, and it's this moment where, like, looking back, was there something, you know, in the song that I recognized about myself, you know, or was it just completely uh, to the side? But at the same time, I think that his music was always really um, validating and really encouraging, um, and not necessarily simple, but at the same time accessible, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I'm not sure what others may have identified with as sort of consolatory, but um, for me, I, it was it was that. So. Did Did you identify him as an outsider, or or, or how how did you see him then? Um, I think that I I think pity is a really difficult concept to bring up because that kind of has certain connotations of power that I'm not really comfortable with, so I'm not sure P would, would be the word, but I think certainly I empathized with, um, and I think I empathize even more for him now, um, because of the work I do, as somebody who was really ostracized and really demonized for their sexuality in ways that we would never let people get away with um, for gay celebrities, right? You could not make fun of a gay celebrity sexuality like that without it being outright called homophobic um, or persecutory, right? Right, um, right, right. Right. So, and, yeah. And in the, in the old days, of course, when people uh, talked about gays, that that was, of course, uh, a big thing. There, you know, there was a lot, you know, like, uh, you know, a lot of like Mike. Uh, what do you call it? Uh, you know, um, the the poet, uh, <laughs> the gay poet, Allen Ginsberg, was yeah. also interested in young people as well as you know people older and. You know, and he wrote poems, you know, about that, and he celebrated life. And, uh, yeah, people didn't call him a weirdo. But, uh, you know, so it depends on, uh, partly, of course, it's the race issue, you know, the how um, how uh, Michael uh, played with his uh, racial identity, and uh, or at least the, you know, visible parts of it. And uh, he, uh, it was easy to dismiss for some people. I, I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. And uh, although it's interesting, that with the Black Entertainment Network, they uh, they just did a event uh, that celebrated his life. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. So that was quite quite nice. Um, the uh, Do you see what is... what? Do you, how do you see his legacy going down in among gay people? Um, if I'm being very optimistic, which is rare for me, um, 
I think that hopefully eventually people might recognize the kind of queer work that he did throughout his life, um, even when it was making people uncomfortable, um, and especially when it was making people uncomfortable, as indicative that he was um, a queer performer in ways that had nothing to do with, uh, you know, homosexuality, right? So part of me hopes that in the future queer scholars or queer folks will kind of wake up to the fact that he was actually um, emblematic of, of maybe some, some blind spots in uh, LGBT politics in the new millennium. Um, but I, I don't know. Again, that's me being very, very optimistic, I suppose. Do you, um, is, is, is queer studies catching on in the academy right now? Um, in what way? I mean, in terms of, you know, will you be able to get a job <laughs> when you graduate? Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. Will I be able to get jobs? <laughs> um, I, I think that, uh, oh gosh, uh, yeah, I, I think maybe it's actually kind of switching the other way where it became uh, very popular and very fashionable. And so, you know, in my cohort, and there are 15 of us, Wow. Um, there are two or three of us who focus on queer studies, and then one guy who is kind of doing queer-interested work, and I think he's he's really excited about it. But um, I don't know. I, I, it's had a lot. There have been a lot of, of shakeups in queer studies in the past five years, um, and so I guess we'll we'll see. But hopefully, hopefully, yes, I'll be able to get a job someday. <laughs> what, what do you mean shakeups? Um, well, just sort of. There's actually. My best friend and I constantly bicker about this. There's been a lot of um, movement away from discussions of, of sexuality as such or um, maybe towards something more abstract than actual, you know, like people as sexual actors or people as gender actors or something like that. Um, there's some really great work coming out by a woman named Sarah Ahmed, um, A-H-M-E-D, Huh. who is at uh, Kate College in London, I think. Yeah. Um, and she has a great book called Queer Phenomenology, which starts as this um, book really interested in uh, sort of sexuality and certain familial orientations, but really becomes a much more broadly philosophical text. And so I think what queer scholars are kind of grappling with is how to extend the main arguments or main theoretical perspectives of queer theory to... Um, things besides sex. Um, and it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how that works out. Do you think there's, uh, there always seems to be a tension between activists and queer theory people. Uh, some of my activist friends uh, think that queer studies is the worst thing to come uh, into academia because they threw out uh, the identity thing. Is that, yeah. is, is that fair criticism or what do you think? How do you um, react to that? I think that... What's difficult about queer studies is coming up with a livable politics for um, maintaining some kind of integrity between what we know empirically as sexual subjects and then what queer right. theory tells us about historical contingencies and things like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I find myself, I am from an activist background. I am still an activist um, in addition to all of my studies. I think what's difficult is that so much in queer studies is really... I don't want to say opposed to, and I'm not going to say that it's all queer studies, but really skeptical about what's going on in mainstream queer politics right now. I, I won't even say queer politics, I'll say LGBT politics. It's more theory, um, right? It's more theory than actuality? Is, is that true? Well, no, I, I, I think part of the problem for me is that sometimes, you know, what the HRC is doing seems very nearsighted and very kind of, I don't want to say selfish, but kind of um, self-involved. Um, human rights whereas, council, human rights, uh, so-called human rights uh, council, right, uh, or whatever they call uh, it. Human rights campaign? Campaign, I mean, yeah, uh, HRC, yeah. you said, yeah. Um, just so I, it, yeah. I think it's very easy when you're an academic to, like, sit in the library and just kind of um, think that, you know, mainstream LGBT politics is completely missing the point or ignoring too many folks, or ignoring too many subjects besides marriage, right? And I, I, I do think that's right. a, a very fair criticism, and it's not rare. Um, that is fair, yeah. Out of yeah. I've done a show, actually, with a professor from uh, Washington, D.C., I think, uh, was it American University? A law, law professor who did a book uh, about the other people that are actually deserving of 
uh, you know, rights. Uh, but if you get uh, just gay marriage, uh, you know, legalized, then you leave out other people who are living together who don't, who don't want to get married. Right. Yeah. Um, so, I, uh, so I guess um, to answer your question, uh, again, with the sort of personal anecdote, I think that, you know, as much as mm, we live our lives politically, right, and I don't think it's, um, it's helpful to sort of parts off like, oh, I am doing political action now because I am holding a sign and on a street corner, you know. Um, right. Queer theory yeah. and queer studies have really affected the way that I engage with my friends and with my lovers, um, and I, I see all that as political, and I, I think that, um, you know, it, it starts dialogues that are really important um, for getting people to question their political beliefs. Um, so whether, you know, whether at the end of the day that means that I'm going to you know, like vote <laughs> against gay marriage because I won't, right? Who would? Um, uh, is kind of beside the point, right? Because if that comes up in New York, and it hopefully will soon, um, on a ballot, then, you know, I would, of course, vote yes, but it would always be like yes for gay marriage with an asterisk saying I am kind of critical of what this is doing, right? right. Um, I think in, in the old days we didn't really want to get married. We, we just wanted to, you know, have sex. And uh, <laughs> with uh, with Stonewall, I mean that was the main thing to change sexual relations. Yeah. And we didn't want to, uh, you know, be the same as straight people. Yeah. Uh, or, or import this whole institution of marriage uh, intact, yeah. uh, which is part of the problem now with the gay politics is there's no questioning of the whole institution. They just want a piece of the pie. Yeah, and I I think like. What I would like to see is a movement away from juridical marriage and questions of that. And I, I don't think this is going to be possible until gay marriage is legalized, unfortunately. Um, but a movement away from those questions and a movement towards how we conceive of intimacy um, right, and right. what we see as necessary for intimate bonds to form, right? Because I have, you know, more intimacy with my, my best friend who is ostensibly a heterosexual woman, you know, than I've had with many, many, many of, of my male lovers. Right, um, right. And what does that mean? And what why are we kind of unwilling to recognize that form of intimacy um, and what might it mean for us to um, conceive of, you know, legislation or a politics based around that kind of bond as opposed to the metaphysics behind marriage, right? And also this whole uh, concept of polyamory is uh, getting some attention <laughs> more recently, maybe. Uh, well, also um, yeah. asexual politics. Right, um, right. Which is really, really fascinating. Um but, yeah, you don't really hear about that, do you? <laughs> or may- maybe not as much, anyway. Yeah, although the New York Times did a little uh, article on some case in Washington where uh, some, uh, I think an Asian guy was living, was murdered, and was living in a polyamorous uh, household. And oh, there was wow. A, there was an article about how the blogs uh, were actually uh, doing more investigative reporting on that than mainstream media. So it's, all, it's more about media, you know, kind of the change in uh, investigative reporting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, well, because mainstream media is cutting back and there's not, not the resources to cover yeah. these stories. Yeah. Um, so do you see, uh, I mean, I, I thought it was, it was interesting that the, the gay media has, you know, just basically covered this and quoted celebrities like Elizabeth Taylor, but really refused to go more into the depth about Michael Jackson. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, what's interesting about that, um, about his death in relationship to the recent deaths of, of B. Arthur, right, um, is that we're willing to accept B. Arthur, who was essentially a heterosexual woman, right, as far as I know. Who? Um, who? who? As, as a queer icon, and then Michael Jackson, who... Oh, oh who was the <laughs> other person? Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry, uh, B. Arthur, and then Sarah Fawcett to an extent oh, as well, yeah. right? But um, sort of just as sort of being, um, I hate to use the word fabulous, but I think that's what all my friends were saying about her, right? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're willing to recognize sort of like camp femininity, um, even in heterosexual women, as, you know, worthy of, of being recognized as a queer boss, right? Um, but with Michael Jackson, that's not going to happen um, to the same degree. So, I don't know, like, it, it, it seems really interesting to me that we're, mainstream gay media is really willing to make those kinds of exceptions um, and those kinds of leaps about who gets included um, in the conception of a gay community or a queer community 
um, but then is, is not willing to make other exceptions. It's sad so, that, you know, 40 years after Stonewall has come to this, yes. that uh, they kind of dictating history, you know, they're just rewriting history, I suppose, you, would, yeah. you could say. Yeah, uh, definitely. So on that sad note, <laughs> we have to end this uh, discussion of Michael Jackson as a queer icon. Uh, thank you very much. We've been talking. This is Dan Sun of Subversity Show, talking with Kaylin Alexander uh, of Cornell University. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Bye. Yeah, thanks. Bye-bye. Uh, that was Kaylin Alexander of Cornell, a graduate student there in queer studies, talking about Michael Jackson as a queer icon. And earlier, we also talked with Mary uh, Bag. Bak- uh, Sorry, Mary Giovagnoli, who's the director of the Immigration Policy Center about immigration reform under Obama uh, as he uh, moves to appoint a task force to look into that. So this is Dan Sung signing off for Subversity here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. The show will be posted online at KUCI.org slash subversity and also on the iTunes shop if you search for KUCI. Uh, this is Dan Zhang. The links are also on the Subversity website. This is Dan Zhang signing off for Subversity.